five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the top of the knot. Hello, I'm Mark Boucher, and I'm your host for the Space Q podcast. I'm excited to launch this new show. My goal is to have a new episode each week, published on Thursdays. From space policy, commercial and new space, to science missions, I'll try to cover what's important to you, the listener. My guest today is Sylvain Laporte, President of the Canadian Space Agency. Welcome, Monsieur Laporte, to episode one of the Space Q podcast. Well, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Okay, so I, I thought I'd start with just a, a little note that's uh, without going into the broader topics that I had uh, mentioned that we would discuss. Um, you've been president for two years and three months, and it might surprise you to know that only one past president has served a full term. Uh, now that you've settled into the job and you know what it entails, can we expect you to stay a full term? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Um, it, it certainly is my intention, for sure. Uh, you have to understand that uh, I'm, like many people in this business, I'm an absolute nerd when it comes to, uh, to space. Um, you know, I, I'll call myself a Trekkie, and I'll call myself a, a follower of, uh, of everything related to space. So you can imagine that when I was asked to come in to work with a space agency, it was a, it was a dream come true. And I'll share with you that uh, um, I really don't have any problems getting up in the morning. I always look forward to, you know, the day's events and, and being able to contribute. So, you know, if everything still goes well as it does, uh, as it does now, you know, uh, certainly looking forward to a, a complete mandate, that's for sure. So, which it's quite interesting you say that because, um, as you know, I've been following, covering the uh, Canadian space sector for some time now. And, uh, you know, Canadian space agency presidents, especially in the last 10 years or so, uh, other than Steve McLean, don't seem to last very long. Um, so uh, when I started to see how you were progressing in the job, I sort of got the feeling that, you know, you you actually wanted this job and that and that you were you know you you were committed to it. So here's here's a, another follow up to that one, which is, and and this has only happened once before. If you're asked, would you stay on to do a second term? <laughs> you're really asking unfair questions there, Mark. Um, <laughs> you know, by the time the second term happens, I'm going to be you know around sixty years old. Um, so. You know, depending on uh, how health is going, depending on, you know, my, my personal plans with respect to retirement, and depending how, you know, what's on the plate in terms of, uh, of challenges and whatnot, for sure, if I feel that I can still contribute, um, I certainly will consider it very, very seriously. But to be honest with you, um, you know, we've got quite a number of challenges in just the next couple of years. So let's just make sure we go through those successfully before we start looking at, you know, the, the, the longer term future when it comes to uh, my tenure as a president. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, I wanted to talk about the astronaut selection process. Um, yeah. The strategy you used to promote and communicate the astronaut search campaign, in my opinion, was a good one. Uh, it kept the CSA in the news with announcements coming almost every month uh, since the search started. So I got a couple questions related to that. 
Was this planned? Whose idea was it? And are you surprised with the media and public interest? Um, okay. So, you know, we don't just out of the blue decide that we go off and hire astronauts. I mean, we need to have uh, a requirement within the space program. So um, that's something that has been planned and has been uh, thought of for a long time. So we are um, certainly not reacting from an ad hoc spur of the moment. Uh, no, I was actually talking about the... Um, you know, with respect to whose idea was it, I mean, it's a, it's a combined idea of, uh, of, the, uh, of the team at the CSA, um, also in, con- in uh, uh, conversations with uh, our partners at NASA and our two astronauts that are there currently um, in terms of, you know, where we see things going in the future, what are the opportunities, uh, what are the jobs to be done by astronauts when they don't fly? So everything there was taken into consideration when we made the decision to hire. Yeah, so I, th- I think I w- what I was specifically referring to was actually the strategy and uh, to promote and communicate the actual event itself. Um, oh, okay. unla- unlike um, the past, unlike the past, um, you know, where it was relatively quiet. I mean, this was very much a, a, a public, you know, uh, you know, here's what's happening. Here's the astronauts. It's on the website, their bios. Here's the videos. We hadn't seen that before. So that, that's what I'm actually referring to. I mean, that was a good strategy, in, in my opinion. Yep. And um, again, it's a, it's a team effort. Um, you know, the CSA is, uh, is quite sensitive to um, insur- sensitize, sorry, to ensure that you know the public is aware of all of the uh, the really great achievements in the space program, and of course, when you're looking at hiring astronauts, we must take the opportunity to to, to build a sense of pride in Canadians um, with respect to how much talent we've got in Canada when it comes to uh, you know uh, uh, astronaut candidates. So. Using media and using social media in particular with respect to this was, uh, you know, not a very hard decision to make. Um, and, and going forward, you can certainly look to the CSA to benefit and leverage um, all of the opportunities to keep Canadians apprised of, you know, the, the, the very real, very tangible and outstanding achievements of Canadians in space. So... Uh, we're getting close to crunch time here for an announcement, um, and I know uh, NASA's announcement is coming up shortly. Um, uh, are we expecting the announcement within a month or sooner? Uh, well, let's just say that sooner the better. Um, the astronaut basic course starts on the 1st of August, which means that the astronaut and their family must be settled in Houston by that time. So you can expect an announcement soon, yes. Okay, great. All right, transitioning to some budget talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so budget 2017 included new funding for the CSA, $80.9 million over five years, uh, and they were for three specific things, an instrument for a future Mars orbiter, and I believe that uh, instrument is uh, uh, going to be a subsurface ice sounder on NASA's future next Mars orbiter mission called NEMO. Uh, the University of Waterloo's proposed quantum encryption and science satellite, KESAC, I believe, will, uh, is uh, designed to demonstrate the next generation uh, encryption keys through the creation of quantum links in between, between the ground and space, and the Canadian CubeSat project. 
But at the same time, uh, the CSA's latest departmental plan has planned spending going down the next three years. And in fact, the 2019-20 the planned spending is listed at $297 million, a level that we haven't seen since 1988-99. And if you factor in adjustment for inflation, your available dollars really seem to have shrunk. Uh, even taking into account the new funding spread over five years, uh, it doesn't look good for the CSA funding. Uh, you've said in the past when, uh, when you first came to the space agency, you had to work with the budget you have. So going forward, how can Canada stay competitive when our base budget is shrinking? And, and I also, I realize that the planned spending is just that planned. Do you see light at the end of the tunnel for the CSA budget to take a turn for the better in the coming two years? Okay, well, you've said uh, quite a number of things here that uh, yeah. um, don't need probably some, some clarification. So um, with respect to uh, the budget that I do have, I can assure you that with the budget we have, we can deliver on our mandate. That, that's a given. Now, you've used some numbers with respect to, uh, to reductions and whatnot. Um, the way the CSA is funded, there are two components to our, to our funding. One is what we call a base budget, right? So my base budget hasn't changed. It's set at $260 million a year, okay? So that's not going down. That hasn't changed. Now, over and above the base budget, the CSA has allocated money each year to deliver on certain missions, right? So like the Radar Sat Constellation mission, for example. So all of these missions have a spending profile. So you have a little bit of money at the beginning. You have a lot of money in the design and the build phases of a, of a mission. And then the money starts to peter out as you get close to the launch. And then you get into operations. So picture those kinds of bubbles being added on top of the, uh, of the base budget. So where you're seeing in, in, the, uh, in the RPP, you know, a profiles of money going down, that's just a reflection of some of the mission's uh, uh, spending profile. So that doesn't mean that with that going down, we're now all of a sudden doing less. No, it just means that we're delivering on that mission, which is the case with the numbers that you have quoted. Uh, most of it is related to the RCM spending profile. And spending on the RCM is, has reached that point where we're now seeing some year-over-year -year decreases because the, the three satellites are well on their way to being delivered, you know, on time, on scope, and on cost for a launch in the September 2018 timeframe. So wouldn't equate, you know, the, the drop in the spending as a budget reduction, and therefore the CSA is more constrained to deliver on its mandate. My base budget has not changed. Uh, but you said the AA-based funding was set at $260 million. It used to be set at $300 million, so it, it actually has gone down over time. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so, that, was mean, a, that was a reduction from a few years ago, a planned reduction from a few years ago. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to... Um, uh, oh, yeah. Recently, uh, the Senate Standing Committee on National Security and Defense released a report, uh, the military underfunded, the walk must match the talk. Uh, you actually appeared before uh, the committee to testify. 
Uh, and in the report, they said that uh, recommendation, as part of recommendation 13, that the government of Canada designate satellites and radar installations as critical infrastructure. So space assets currently aren't considered national infra- critical infrastructure, I understand. Should they be, and why, and what are the implications of actually doing that? Okay, so you are correct. I did appear in front of uh, in front of the committee, and we had a, a great conversation with respect to, um, you know, how do we how do we protect satellites up there? Um, there's no denying that satellites are are very important to uh, to Canadians. Um, they're ubiquitous. Uh, they serve for you know uh, telecom purposes, safety, sovereignty, security. So we do have a big reliance on uh, the assets that we uh, that we have in space. You know, with respect to declaring them, um, you know, critical infrastructure, that really rests with uh, Public Safety Canada. It's up to them to make the decision as to um, whether or not satellites can be considered as such. So that's really not uh, something that is in the scope of the CSA's authority to do. Okay. Um, Switching gears then, um, and going back to something that you mentioned, which is the radar uh, sat constellation mission, um, it's only one. It's one of two current major crown projects. The other being the the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, RCM is scheduled to launch next year, and will build on the legacy of radar sat in one and two. So, how big a game changer is this project for Canada? What should our listeners take away as the benefits for Canada? Well, this is a a big game changer for sure. Did you have a follow-on question there, Mark? Or? Uh, the, the, just that, uh, you know, how uh, RCM will help the North, because the North is uh, underserved at this point. So, yeah, so our, clearly the, the, the Raider Side Constellation mission will be a game changer. Um, just the, the basics of it, right? So today we have uh, RadarSat 2, which followed RadarSat 1. So we do have a succession of very successful um, Earth observation programs. Now, these Earth observation satellites use a technology called satellite, a synthetic aperture radar. So it's a radar that, um, unlike a, an optical camera, for example, it's a radar that can see through clouds, and it can actually differentiate a number of elements on Earth, like the difference between water and, and ice and soil and rock and all that kind of stuff. So um, these are interesting uh, profiles that the satellite can uh, can uh, can pick up. So, RCM is you know the next generation of this successful uh, uh, legacy of building radar satellites that we have in Canada. And instead of one satellite like we have today, RCM is a constellation of three satellites. So what that means is in the same orbit, um, three satellites will actually be going over the same territory one after the other. So they follow each other in the orbit. So when you look at benefits for the north, for example, these satellites will be actually uh, um, going through the uh, northern passage four times a day now, right, at three satellites each. So the number of, of refreshes, the timeliness that we will be able to observe events in the north will increase exponentially, first of all. Second of all, now that we have three satellites, they don't all have to look at the same place, look at the same thing, right? So with three satellites, although they're following each other, we can actually task the satellite to complement 
each other in terms of how they view the earth. Right? So then the data acquisition part is a whole lot more efficient, a whole lot more um, uh, effective. So, you know, then when you look at how we, so we're able now to collect a lot more data than when we had only one satellite. We're benefiting from new technology than, than what RadarSat 2 had. So now it's a question of being able to use that data. And we've worked extensively um, with all of the government departments and, and their scientists to make sure that new applications, new software was being developed to benefit from this new capability. So, you know, we're working, for example, with um, environment and, uh, and uh, climate change folks in terms of improving weather service, ice monitoring, um, monitoring pollution and oil spills. Um, we're looking, you know, we're working with fisheries and oceans to look at, you know, monitoring coastlines, uh, illegal fishing, ocean science research. Um, what else? We could, you know, we're working with agriculture and agri-foods because they're looking at using the data for crop monitoring and, uh, you know, things like, uh, like uh, um, you know, smart farming or stuff of that nature, where through the information that the radar sat provides, um, a farmer could now uh, uh, get support in terms of deciding what kind of seed he uses in which parcel of land based on humidity uh, or dryness of the soil on his farm, right? And that then yields uh, a better production of his crop when he's able to do that. So, you know, consider that data collection will be enhanced substantially, and now the scientific research and, and operations of government have been adapted to benefit from this uh, incremental uh, data capture capacity. And so, um, thinking ahead, um, will there be a follow-on to RCM? Will there be a RCM 456 or, or is there some other SAR technology or satellite or satellites that are planned for the future potentially? Um, well, it's really early to, uh, really to tell right now. Um, you know, we were launching RCM um, in 2018. Um, it's got an expected uh, or planned uh, life expectancy of about seven years. Um, so really, we're talking beyond 2025 uh, to, to look at some follow-on activities. So we've got some time to, to react there for sure. Um, and, you know, we um, have initiated uh, some preliminary discussions with, uh, with uh, uh, the government departments with respect to what could they see, you know, beyond 2025 in terms of their, their future needs for the long term. Um, so we are engaged in discussions to look at the longer term, but, you know, no decision needs to be taken for a long time here. So let's just make sure that um, we deliver an RCM and we're able to yield all of the benefits from it, uh, while we also consider what could follow on if we need to follow on. You know, the idea when you're looking at, you know, climate change and environmental type of, uh, of sciences, the idea is to keep data and collect data for long terms so that you can have long-term uh, trending you know, of how uh, climate changes or how the environment changes. 
Um, so no commitment, but uh, certainly we do understand that uh, a long-term perspective would be useful going forward. Now, you mentioned uh, climate change. And um, Canada, the current government in particular, uh, has been really embracing uh, trying to do something about climate change, uh, showing some, uh, it appears, leadership in this area. Um, what does that mean for our space program? And, and does it mean that, uh, based on what else is happening uh, globally, that there might be opportunities for commercial entities to to uh, you know, take advantage of uh, Canada's leadership role in this by putting up some uh, you know satellites uh, like GHGSat and others to 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 monitor and to uh, report this data. Hmm. Um, you bring about two very interesting uh, topics. So, um, when it comes to climate change, um, you know, climatologists a few years ago had uh, an, an international conference where they identified um, fifty essential climate variables. These 50 uh, uh, variables kind of give a report card on how uh, the Earth is doing, right? And then they were able to establish that uh, over half of those variables could only be collected through space, not from ground uh, uh, measurements. So that is quite revealing in terms of, you know, the potential growth of doing environmental or climate change science in space. So I suspect it will be a growing market for those in that business. Now, with respect to that market, um, governments have been there uh, already, are currently there, and, and will likely be there in the future. So Canada is one of the shining examples of having invested in scientific payloads to measure the environment. So one of our, our satellites called SISAT uh, was, uh, you know, uh, uh, groundbreaking technology in terms of looking at, uh, at the ozone um, for, uh, you know, around the Earth. Um, and and CISAT's been there many, many years, as you, as you well know. The level of, of scientific contribution to, uh, from CISAT is just incredible. So will the government look to new opportunities in the future to continue doing such type of science? Um, I hope so. There certainly is room for growth. What's interesting now, and you bring up GHGSat, which is a private company, what's interesting is that now there are commercial companies internationally that are looking at collecting data for similar purposes and selling the data set. So there's a business case there for the private sector to do that. You know, so from a, from a, a scientific perspective, whether the data comes from the government or whether it comes from, from the, uh, the commercial sector, uh, the idea is to get access to the data to be able to conduct your science. So I'm really optimistic that going forward in the future, um, climatologists, environmental scientists, uh, those that do research in those areas, will have a much richer set of data going forward. Okay. Um, I want to switch topics again. Um, because I'm trying to cover, you know, a whole variety of things since we uh, haven't had a chance to discuss like this uh, before. Uh, and that's to look a little bit further down the road and to discuss about some of the new initiatives for uh, the Beyond Low Earth Orbit uh, studies. Um, Canada is one of 15 members of the International Space Exploration Coordination Group and has been building and refining a 
which has been refining a global exploration roadmap. And from what I understand, Canada has been very active. Uh, on March the 9th, uh, the CSA released an advance notice for potential post-ISS human spaceflight contributions portfolio and planetary exploration and space astronomy preparatory activities. Um, our listeners uh, should know that these ideas are in part at the result of your uh, Canadian Space Exploration Workshop, which you held late last year, where the space community had the opportunity to provide their input. So in looking at these ideas that are listed, uh, I notice that Moon is a major uh, destination of interest. Um, so why the Moon and why now? <laughs> so I guess to answer the, the, the question about why the Moon, um, first, um, NASA put forward a, a, a long-term uh, uh, program that they've labeled Moon and Mars. So for NASA, the objective is to eventually settle on Mars. So they've been public with that. Now, we know, based on the, the, you know, the years of research that we've done on the International Space Station, that there's still um, a lot of research to be done um, to keep human beings safe in the, in the travels to Mars and return. And there's also a lot of research to be done on the equipment to make sure that they're going to be well served on their journey um, uh, when they go to uh, when they go to Mars. So we're looking at the moon. And by the way, the destination for Mars Mars has been rationalized because we've made sufficient discoveries with some of our rovers and with some of our orbiters um, discoveries on Mars to show that there's enough water and enough chemical components there that we could sustain life. On Mars, right? So that's why it's uh, it's uh, one of the, uh, the the primary objectives of NASA. Now, that being said, you just don't all of a sudden decide that you go from from you know the ISS to Mars. Um, we've got to do all that research that I mentioned. So the best place to do that research um, is around the Moon. So at when you're on the International Space Station at 400 kilometers in altitude, you although you have microgravity you still get a lot of protection from the Earth, protection from alpha particles, for example, you know, as the sun would, uh, would, would emit. So we need to have um, uh, an environment where we don't have the protection of the Earth and where, you know, we could get a, a realistic um, um, uh, environment that would appear or, or would be similar to what we would have when we go to Mars. So around the moon, we would get such, uh, such a, a, an opportunity to do that. And the moon is interesting because if something were to happen, um, you know, our astronauts are, are a few days away from coming back to Earth. So if we're going to be learning some hard lessons, let's do it around the moon so that we have, you know, a, a good fallback position should something, should something happen. So the idea is for the partnership and the communities um, to look at, you know, what we could do uh, on a, uh, uh, you know, on a, a lunar orbiting station, and what kind of research we could do that could be helpful in preparing, you know, the technology for an eventual Mars mission. So I noticed in the study there was quite a few different uh, ideas uh, put forward. 
how do you see Canada participating in 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 the cislunar orbital station, um, lunar surface activities? Uh, are we going to see a continuation of some of the studies that we've already had for lunar rovers? Um, and, and actually, I'm quite interested in in what we would contribute in in terms of the cislunar. Uh, station portion of it. Mm -hmm. So, well, it's too early now to talk about what Canada could contribute. You know, we have to still do quite a bit of analysis. In fact, the uh, the ISS partners met uh, in Montreal just uh, last week or the week before um, to start putting together some plans in terms of what that station could look like, what its role could be, um, what we could see on the station. So we're still in very early stages of, uh, of design and, uh, and discussion. So we're far, far away from being uh, uh, in a position to come back to, uh, you know, to our, our government, come back to our politicians and say, well, of all things uh, related to this mission, this is what Canada could contribute. Um, but, you know, we do certainly, um, you know, the, the partnership does recognize Canada's strengths. Um, uh, in the space program, uh, particularly those that are related uh, to stuff that we've done on the uh, on the ISS, for example. So, and you've seen contracts issued in those areas before, right? So, Canada's recognized for its robotics. Um, we're recognized for our, our rovers. We're recognized for our optical systems, navigation systems, communication systems, uh, medical. Uh, we've done quite a bit of medical research on the ISS, so we're recognized for that as well. So, you know, in those areas, what could we contribute um, will greatly depend on what the partnerships want to achieve in a cislunar environment. So those discussions will be happening in the next few months, next few years, and will iteratively refine the, uh, the designs. And we're, we're talking about uh, technical level designs at this time. And we'll iteratively, well, iteratively refine them until we're in a position to make some recommendations on our contributions. One, one, one thing that, um, that uh, uh, I did want to uh, uh, convey to your listeners, um, although we've issued contracts to get you know, input from, from industry on uh, some, of our, some of our strengths, uh, there will be, um, if it's not done already, but it soon will be, we will issue a, a bit of a, of a catch-all contract out there um, uh, that, you know, we'll look at what else could Canada do that would be really innovative and outside of all of our core technology. You know, what could be disruptive out there? What could be imaginative, um, you know, that we should consider in terms of um, a potential contribution from Canada? So although we have, you know, issued contracts uh, um, on those areas of strengths, we are still curious about what's out there still that we may not have tapped into and that we potentially could tap into for the future. Well, I certainly think that that idea will uh, excite many people within the community to be able to come up with something that uh, doesn't fit into what was previously prescribed as, you know, put something into these categories. So that, that sounds uh, interesting. Um, and I have to ask, so we have two new astronauts upcoming, um, who knows if we'll have more astronauts in the future beyond that, but will these astronauts, you know, will they someday might actually have a chance to go to the moon? <laughs> um, hmm. You know, there's the, uh, 
there's the diplomatic answer to that, and there's the excited kid oh, come on. working in space answer to that. So um, when I get excited, I'd l- I sure like to think that these astronauts will have an opportunity to, uh, to be part of, the, uh, part of the moon program. Um, but then the, the realistic, you know, uh, uh, voice in my head also says that, you know, we need to take things one thing at a time. It takes many, many, many years to train an astronaut. There will still be opportunities on the ISS. So really, I couldn't really conclude, or I wouldn't want our, our listeners to conclude here that these folks are going to the moon. Um, you know, we have quite a bit of work to still do around the ISS. Um, so we have to look at things one mission at a time, one step at a time as we go forward. But I sure would hope that at some point um, we would see uh, Canada's involvement uh, around the moon. So uh, there was something else that caught my interest in the uh, advance notice that was put out, and that's that Canada might participate in a Mars sample return mission. Um, any thoughts on that, uh, how Canada might be a partner on that? Um, not that I'm aware of. All right, so it's just a, a study that's out there that might come out that uh, Canadians might uh, have a chance at. Um, Can you repeat the, the question? I'm not sure that I heard properly. Did you say Mars oh. sample return? or? Yeah, Mars sample return. It's in the uh, advance notice that was put out on March the 9th. Okay. I was a little s- surprised to see that in there. Okay, so Mars sample return. Um, so, you know, we, one of the things that, uh, that all of us um, in the space community are concerned with is, you know, the, the amount of analysis that we need to do um, to prepare the way for an eventual human uh, uh, presence on that planet. So, you know, we've got the orbiters looking at Mars from from way up in space. We've got rovers uh, that are doing tremendous amount of scientific work um, on Mars right now, uh, on the ground of Mars, for which we have a, a really great uh, a Canadian instrument on the rover. Um, but the next step is, you know, as rovers go, there are certain limits to their technology. There's certain limits to the type of research that they can do. So getting a sample from Mars and bringing it to a more sophisticated laboratory um, would certainly complement those activities that are required before we send human beings to, to the planet. Um, so, yes, and i sorry I misunderstood your, your, your question. Um, so... If we can contribute through Canada's technology and Canada's strength to a Mars sample return, um, you know, then that would be uh, an investment for the long term, uh, for sure, and something that, you know, from a science perspective and from a, a, a human exploration perspective, we would be interested in. So, you know, those discussions as well are, are ongoing at this point, um, and you know, we'll have to wait and see how the partnership reacts to all of those opportunities. Okay. I have just a couple more questions and, and then we'll wrap it up because I know you're, uh, have pressed on time. Um, so uh, we now have another company that's interested in launching satellites from Canada. Uh, Maritime Launch Services, uh, which, wants to, which wants to use a, a Ukrainian 
medium lift rocket to launch from Nova Scotia. They seem to be the real deal, although, uh, you know, like many other new startup ventures, uh, while they have some funding, they need to raise uh, the necessary capital to make uh, to actually make it happen. But uh, what do you think of this venture? Do you, do you think uh, this would be something good for Canada to have this type of uh, launcher and facility in Canada? Well, I think so, yes. I mean, the company did a lot of due diligence, did a lot of analysis um, in terms of the best locations um, for them in terms of, uh, of their specific rocket, and they, they picked Canada. They picked uh, Nova Scotia for that. Um, so clearly they've, they've done their homework with, uh, with respect to that. Um, this is a, uh, you know, a, uh, a private company, uh, venture. Um, so, you know, they have secured, uh, uh their investments. So they've likely have a, a very good business case with respect to what they believe they'll be able to achieve in the, uh, you know, in, uh, uh with the Canadian company, um, and, you know, with respect to the benefit for Canada, well, of, of course, it's a benefit for, for, for Canada to have a launching company on our grounds. Um, it aids or, or it supports our, our ideas of uh, or aspirations with respect to, uh, to economic growth. Um, so it, it clearly is a net benefit to, uh, to Canadians to have uh, MLS establish themselves in Nova Scotia. So on a related, uh, related to this, um, I've been, I've talked to some university students, uh, here in Ontario, and this was also brought up at uh, the recent, uh, space advisory, uh, board meeting that, uh, I attended in Toronto. Um, there seems to be, uh, quite a bit of interest right now from the, on the university level, from the student side, um, to getting more involved in rocketry. Uh, several of the universities that I talked to are participating in international intercollegiate rocket engineering competition in the U.S. and other competitions. And, and, you know, I'm basically asking this question for them because they're interested. Is rocketry something the CSA might have an interest in supporting in the future, at least at the university level and maybe going forward? That's a really interesting question. Um, and I was present when uh, when it was discussed in one of the in one of the fab uh, consultations, and um, it is so refreshing to see how um, Canadian students have been able to achieve uh, the notoriety that they have uh, achieved with respect to to building rockets. Um, many competitions, and, and Canada uh, clearly uh, has been standing on uh, on top of the. Uh, you know the, the the winners podium for uh, for these competitions. So clearly, we recognize uh, uh, quite a bit of interest from uh, from students uh, in that uh, in that area, and we're very very proud of that. It helps to build capacity in Canada. Helps to build our engineering skills. Okay, uh, and just two more quick topics. Um, you know, part of the, the budget 2017 was the announcement of the Canadian CubeSat project, which I laud you for. You know my interest in, in small satellites. Um, I think it's a, you know, we're a little bit behind the ball here. The CSA actually was quite interested in this area many years ago. 
but then sort of uh, the interest waned, uh, I think in part particularly because the government wasn't as supportive at the time. Uh, but now it seems to be uh, an area that's resurging. Um, so it's a great initiative. Um, we already had the Canadian Satellite Design Challenge ongoing. How, th how do the two fit together or do they or how's that going to work? Because that was a good private effort. So we've had some conversations with them and, um, you know, in terms of how we go forward and uh, we, we examined a number of, uh, a number of options. Um, and I think everyone agrees that we need to provide as many opportunities as possible, you know, for students to be able to uh, do something related to science, to do something related to space. So um, in the end, we, uh, we decided that to provide uh, a varied level of opportunity for students that uh, we would do the, 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 the NanoSat 150 challenges, uh, as you mentioned. Um, but clearly, no one feels that any one of us is, is competing against other types of competitions. Um, we all recognize that the more there are, the better. Uh, and with respect to the CSDC, in fact, CSA has always been a, a great supporter of, uh, of the opportunity, and we've provided um, you know, some of our, uh, our specialist engineers to give uh, the students counsel, to look at knowledge transfer, you know, to build some skills with them. And we're going to continue to do that within the CSDC. We're not going to stop doing that. Um, but now we have you know, our, our, our NanoSat uh, uh, competition going forward, um, and it's you know, based on the, the webinars and the reactions and the questions we've had so far, um, we're getting quite a bit of interest to, uh, to embark in, uh, in that opportunity. So looking yeah. forward you know, to, uh, to having um, all, of these, uh, all of these competitions in Canada, it, it raises the bar for everyone. Okay. So that leads me to my final topic and a couple questions related to it, which is education and public outreach. Um, the CSA used to have a space awareness and learning program. Uh, unfortunately, several years ago, the, um, before your time, <laughs> the uh, government zeroed out the education budget. So, uh, and you've had some success with some, you know, limited programs uh, like the Tomato Sphere. Uh, you're doing some good things with your social media and the uh, giant map that goes from school to school. Um, but um, how are you handling all this education and public outreach or what you can do with little to no budget? Is it, do you take it from other programs to do the, what you're doing? And, and, and with that... Um, might we see some actual funding dollars going forward, specifically earmarked just to education and public outreach programs and future budgets? Um, well, I guess, first of all, that um, when it comes to outreach, when it comes to education, um, there is a very, very big sense of uh, of, uh, of desire within the CSA um, to do as much as we can. So, and I've got some, some really neat examples uh, that, that, that support us, that support that. Um, so we have rejigged, um, you know, some, some resources internally to be able to do more in this area. As I mentioned earlier in our interview, um, we need to, to build that sense of pride in Canadians. Let me say that differently to instill 
more pride in Canadians because they're already proud of the of the space program, but we're doing so much more now um, that they may not be aware of that would probably create, uh, again, a little increase in their pride. Um, so with respect to, uh, to outreach, for example, by rejigging um, internally, uh, we've been able to put some resources on uh, our social media capacity. Um, and just last year, you know, uh, the last fiscal year, we got 64 million views on stuff that we've posted, right? This is all, all social media uh, combined. Um, that's a lot of people, right? Uh, or a lot of repeats, for sure. But one way or another, that's a lot of presence, right? And at this point, we have, you know, 493,000 followers on our social media. And we do know that some of the social media is dominated by, uh, you know, millennials or, or, or youth. Uh, so, you know, we've got a, a good demographic um, uh, balance of, of folks that are following what we do in space. So that's just incredible. So we're going to continue to post. We're going to continue to, to inform Canadians uh, about our, our achievements in space. But, you know, on top of that, we've asked our employees um, to go out there and, you know, to take um, uh, technology to the masses. And we've had about 100 public events like that, and we estimate that we reached around 20,000 people doing those things. So that is a, is a great achievement, and we were able to achieve that because our, our folks are highly, highly motivated in communicating what we do at the CSA. So, you know, we spoke of, of other opportunities that, uh, that we've leveraged, like the astronaut recruitment campaign. Um, and, you know, we, we did it to make sure Canadians would, would uh, you know, get some pride from it. But we also did it to show um, students uh, that if they stick to their studies and if they, um, you know, put a lot of effort in, in reaching their, uh, their dreams, they're capable of achieving things that would be similar to some of the profiled astronauts that they would have read. And when we posted the profiles, we got, say, 1.5 million views of the, of the candidate profiles. But what really struck me as worthwhile, despite all of the big numbers and everything, is that we got teachers and um, uh, guidance counselors who gave us feedback with respect to how they were able to use, you know, the, the stuff that we've posted for the astronauts uh, to show kids that it was worthwhile to stay in school, you know, that it was worthwhile then, if you're going to stay in school, it was worthwhile to go into, you know, one of the STEM disciplines, so science, technology, engineering, and math, right? So, you know, the use of, of our postings was far-reaching. So clearly this is an area that we're going to continue to do uh, to, the, to the, the best extent possible, because we know that it makes a, a big difference in difference in, in children. Uh, I couldn't agree more on the social media front in particular. Um, we've seen great, uh, uh, great results from it ourselves. So I want to thank you for being uh, my guest on the first uh, episode of the Space Q podcast. Uh, I hope you'll consider being a guest for a future episode and we can talk about some new initiatives when they come up. 
so thank you again, Monsieur Laporte. Well, it's been a pleasure, Mark, and I look forward to, to more conversations, if possible. Okay, thank, thank you. you. That's a wrap on the first episode of the Space Q podcast. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined. 